Well, good morning to you. Good to see you today. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 12. If you're just joining us for the first time, I've been preaching through Nehemiah. We're almost there. We've got one chapter to go and then we'll, we'll get into something else. Nehemiah chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 through 43. Nehemiah 12, verses 1 through 43. We won't read it right away, but go ahead and flip there. We'll read it in just a minute here. Let's go ahead and pray. Well, Father, we believe that in Jesus Christ, we are free people. We are free, we are free, we are free Indeed, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, your word says in Galatians 4, 5. Lord, we, we thank you for your freedom. We thank you, Father, for the freedom you've given us in Christ. We thank you, Father, that in Christ Jesus, your endless love pours out upon us. You are, you are a loving God. You're not just loving. You are love, the Bible says. And in Christ, your steadfast love is upon us right now. Lord, no matter, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done in our past, no matter, no matter, Lord, your, your love is upon us. And we just thank you, Father. Your love is tender and gracious and kind and relentless, never ceasing, never stopping in Christ. You love us. You look at your people in Jesus and you say, you are mine. I love you simply because you're mine. And so, Father, we just thank you for that, and we turn to you now um, in light of that, and we say, Father, our loving Father, we just help us now. As we open your word, will you just uh, use this portion of your word for our eternal good? We thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, during, um, during my sabbatical this summer, uh, when we were in Fort Collins, Colorado, house-sitting for my sister... Uh, one of the things I was able to do there was take my four older kids on a hike up uh, something called Horsetooth Mountain there, uh, northern end of the Rocky Mountains, a little over 7,000 feet. We were told uh, by my sister that the hike would take uh, just some 45 minutes, which was a big lie. Uh, <laughs> it took us quite a bit longer on a very hot day. The only thing that actually kept my kids going up the mountain that day was the promise I made that if we did make it to the top, well, I'd buy them a Dairy Queen Mr. Misty. And uh, I don't know if you have one of those. Nothing like a Mr. Misty to keep your kids going. Nothing like sugar uh, to keep, <laughs> keep your kids going. And, and man, on our trek up this little mountain that day, we, we were faked out several times along the way, kept thinking that the peak was just around the corner, and then we would get around the corner, and it was just another plateau on the way up to the peak. But uh, after a couple of hours of hiking, faked out on multiple occasions, uh, we finally made it to the top, to the pinnacle of Horsetooth Mountain. And and listen, at this point in Nehemiah, chapter 12 here, well, we have finally reached the pinnacle of this book. The peak, the climax, the high point of the entire book of Nehemiah. Everything else in the book so far, it's really just been another plateau on the way up to 
this summit here in Nehemiah 12. Just a quick review of what we've covered so far. Before Nehemiah was born, the Jews were taken into exile by the Babylonians who invaded Jerusalem, tore the city wall to the ground, and took the Jews to Babylon. But King Cyrus of Persia later wrote a decree that the Jews could return to Israel and to their city of Jerusalem. And at the start of this book, well, Nehemiah returned to rebuild the city wall. And Nehemiah completed the wall back in Nehemiah chapter 6. And ever since that point, Nehemiah has been rebuilding the people. First rebuilt the wall, and he's now been rebuilding the people. And in chapter 8, Ezra read the book of the law to the people, and they saw their sin against God, which had originally caused them to go into exile. In chapter 9, the people then confessed their sin to God. In chapter 10, the people signed a covenant before God that they would now do better. Nehemiah has been rebuilding these people here, but every last one of those events, every event in the book so far, all of them just plateaus. Each one of them moving just a little closer to this summit right here. And what is it that we find here in Nehemiah chapter 12, the pinnacle of this entire book? One word, we find worship in Nehemiah chapter 12. 12, the people of God now worshiping God. A, a, a lot of people, you know, when they think about the book of Nehemiah, all they really know is this wall. Well, Nehemiah built a wall, and yes, he did. But listen, the wall was not God's ultimate goal in the book of Nehemiah. No, it wasn't. The wall was just a means to an end. God built a wall of safety around his people in order that they then, in safety, might be able to worship their God. Wor the worship was God's ultimate goal in the book of Nehemiah, and the people now do it. We'll go ahead and read it, starting here in verse 1. Nehemiah says, These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua. And here now are the priests and the Levites, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluch, Hatu, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, Ido, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mejamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and their brothers in the days of Jeshua and the Levites. Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Ani and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joiakim, Joiakim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And in the days of Joiakim were priests, heads of fathers' houses. Of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehoanan, of Maluchi, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Moriah, Helkai, of Ido, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Moadiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shamua, of Shemaiah, Je Jehonathan, of Joyarib, Matani, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eder, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nethanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joyada, 
Johanan and Jadua, the Levites, were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch, Madaniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers, standing guard at the storehouse of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jazadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Natophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers have built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Jeshana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half of the officials with me and the priests Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elionoi, Zechariah and Haniah with trumpets, and Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away." Amen, and thank God that is the last list of names uh, in the book of Nehemiah. There's a lot going on there, um, right there in that chapter. In, 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 uh, um, two main things we can see there in that passage, both of them having to do with worship. And the first thing that we can see there in that passage, number one, we see a long genealogy of worship. 
In the first few verses, Nehemiah gives us one final genealogy in this book here. And listen, it's easy to read right over those things, but the genealogies in the Bible are very, very important. The the genealogies, for one thing, they tell us that the events in the Bible were historical events, real people, real places, Not, not just fairy tales. Once upon a time, far, far away, there was an elf in a forest. No, these are real stories real people with real genealogies, a a real history. But another thing the genealogies do is they also tell us a little bit about the people in the Bible. That's what a genealogy does. A genealogy doesn't just give you the bare history of a people. No, a genealogy also tells you a little bit about those people. Uh, In my own personal genealogy on my dad's side, uh, it runs through Portugal. I actually have an ancestor, um, long ago dead now, uh, named Isabella Dominga Velasquez. Uh, It just rolls off your tongue. Uh, My genealogy tells you a little bit about my people, that we have, among other things, a little bit of Portuguese in our blood. And the genealogies in the Bible tell you a little bit about the people in the Bible. And what does this genealogy right here tell us about the people in Jerusalem at this time? Well, one of the primary things that this genealogy tells us is that these people in Jerusalem were a worshiping people. This final genealogy is all about worship. Nehemiah gives us there in that genealogy this list of priests and Levites. And this is the list of priests and Levites that goes from the time when the, Is- when the Israelites first returned to their land there in Jerusalem all the way up to the days of Nehemiah himself. And, and the priests and Levites, this long line of priests and Levites, well, they were essentially the worship leaders for the people of God. The priests and the Levites, they performed sacrifices in the temple. They prayed for the people. They purified the people. They led the people in worship. So, so Nehemiah here in chapter 12, he's essentially given us here this genealogy of the worship leaders for the people of God for the entire time that they have been back in Israel after exile. A long list of worship leaders. Nehemiah, man, he simply wants you to know that during this entire period that the people of God have been back there in Jerusalem, Well, they have been a worshiping people. Didn't always have the temple there. That was just built 20 years ago in the book of Ezra. But ever since they've been back out of exile, they've had priests and Levites who have somehow been leading them in worship. That whole genealogy is all about worship. That's the first thing we see there. This long genealogy of worship. And the second thing we see there in that passage is this climactic day of worship. Nehemiah here, after giving us this genealogy of worship, well, he now leads the people in this citywide day of worship. 
You, you think about Nehemiah, if you've been tracking with us through this book, man, this guy, Nehemiah, has done just about everything under the sun. This guy's amazing. He started out as a cupbearer back in Persia. Well, then he put on his contractor's hat, and he became the general contractor for the wall there in, in Jerusalem, and he's also been the governor in Jerusalem. You would not be surprised to see him operating on a spleen in the next chapter. I mean, this guy is jack of all trades, and master of most of those trades. And now right here in this passage, Nehemiah kind of becomes a bit of a worship director. He now leads these people in, in, in this dedication ceremony of this new wall that they've now built. You know, people today, they, they build a building or, or something like that, and, and then you have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, you know, these massive scissors. That are, my kids would love those things, to cut the ribbons. Well, these people here now, after erecting, after building this wall, they now have this dedication ceremony. Verse 27 says this, Nehemiah says that this was a dedication with gladness with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals and harps and, and lyres. And, and for all you who think you should only have an organ in a church service, notice they had no organ. <laughs> they actually have a lyre, which was more like a guitar. So you got, you got uh, more, more foundation in the Bible for using a guitar in worship than the organ, which... Uh, I'm just not a fan of. <laughs> you might be, and that's okay. I love you. Oh, man, I grew up with an organ, and I don't ever need to hear it again. Uh, you, so, so here you go, man. You got this dedication ceremony. J- just think here of a massive parade in Jerusalem. You know, where I, where I grew up um, back in Kansas, uh, as a kid, we'd always have this annual parade. We'd have what they called the Old Shawnee Days Parade. And you had the high school, you had fire engines, you had uh, overweight Shriners on tiny little motorcycles, which I don't get to this day, but they were there. And uh, man, these people now here in Jerusalem have, have, have a little bit of a worship parade. Uh, singers. Uh, musical instruments, just picture thousands of people now in Jerusalem with, with this worship parade. The first thing the priests and Levites do here to, 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 to prepare for this ceremony is, is just pure, purify everyone and purify everything. If you look at verse 30 again, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Uh, We don't know exactly what that was, this purification process. They may have asked the people to, to, to bathe or to, to, to clean their clothes or to abstain from sexual intimacy, fast and, and pray, something like that. There was probably some type of, 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 of sin offering. The, the people may be sprinkled with the blood of that offering. Also, the Levites and the, and the priests sprinkled with the blood of that offering. Even the city gates and walls uh, were somehow purified here. 
Um, you think about it, the last time they had walls in the city, well, they were overrun by Gentiles, the Babylonians. Many Jews had been, had been killed al- along those walls, and now they erect the walls, and I think it probably just came to their minds, let's cleanse the walls around Jerusalem. So they may have sprinkled the walls also with the blood of a sacrifice or, or with water or something like that. Before the people worship here, they first go through this purification process. And and that right there is a principle that we see all through the Word of God. If you look throughout the entire Bible, purification always precedes or goes before worship. Before the people worship, they, they almost always go through some sort of purification process and cleansed somehow and so they do it here and after this purification process here well nehemiah then appoints two very large choirs if you look at verse 31 then i brought the leaders of judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks and, and the emphasis in the Hebrews on that word great. These were really big choirs. Large, enormous, multiple people. Singers, musical instruments, no organs. <laughs> and man, the, the purpose of these two massive choirs. We just saw it in verse 31. The purpose of these two choirs was to give thanks, to praise, and, and to worship God. Thanking God for, for, for the new wall and for all the other things that he'd done for them. That phrase in, in verse 31, when, when Nehemiah says, I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks that actually comes from just one hebrew word the sentence could literally be literally be translated like this nehemiah says here i appointed two great thanksgivings two great choirs their sole purpose was to give thanks to god for this wall for all the other stuff he'd done so nehemiah he appoints these two huge choirs and he then sends the two choirs in opposite directions around the city. Verses 31 to 39 say that the choirs went up onto this wall, ascending the stairs by the water gate. So you can picture the choirs, both the choirs probably over on the eastern side of the city, uh, over by the water gate. You now have hundreds, if not thousands, of people lining the, the tops of the wall there in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah then sends one of the choirs to the south around the southern part of the city led by Ezra. And, and the other choir goes north around the northern part of the city led by Nehemiah himself. And man, you just picture these people walking along these walls now. You talk about a walk down memory lane for these people. I mean, my word, these people had just a little over a month ago, they had put this wall together, every last bit of it. As they're walking along, they're probably seeing different stones that they set in place. They're probably seeing mortar that they put um, on the wall with, with their own two hands. 
And just imagine how satisfying that would have been for these people. You know how satisfying it is for you when you get done with some project in your house, you, you finish this bathroom that you've been remodeling or something for, for months, and you just step back, and how satisfying it is to look at it. Well, these people are walking on this massive wall that they had just built with their own hands. And man, you talk about vindication here. Do you remember what the enemies of the Jews said about this wall? When the Jews initially started to try to build this wall, tried to bring those, those big stones out of the rubble, do you remember how the, the enemies mocked them? Sanballat mocked the Jews, said, said this in Nehemiah 4.2, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore this wall for themselves? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And Tobiah, uh, uh, Dr. Evil and his partner, Mini-Me, Tobiah then steps up and says this, Nehemiah 4.3, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break it down. And God has now vindicated himself. There are now two massive choirs. Hundreds, if not thousands of people. <laughs> do you ever, you ever see a college football game, the marching band at halftime? Well, just think bigger and think two of them. Parading now around this city on top of this wall. Musicians, singers, absolutely filling Jerusalem with the worship of God. What an amazing picture. What were they singing? What were, what were they singing as they walked along the wall? We have no idea. I think there's a good chance they were singing different psalms probably as they walked. Maybe something like this from Psalm 48, 12. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is our God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. <laughs> just lifting worship up to God. This city or these walls are just evidence that our God is real, that our God guides us. He will guide us forever. And after these two choirs then finish their trek around the city. They probably meet over on the western side of the city. Well, they then just head to the temple. If you look here at verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood now in the house of God, the temple. So they're in the temple building. They're, they're around in the temple complex. All these thousands of people. What did they do there? Well, verse 42 says they just sang some more. And they just offered great sacrifices to God. And man, you got to love the word that Nehemiah uses here to describe the worship at the temple. It's the word joy. You know, if you look closely at the final verse there that we read, Nehemiah actually uses the word joy or re rejoiced five different times. Look at verse 43 again. 
And they offered great sacrifices that day. And they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Man, what a picture. Taunted, taunted in the first part of the book. There's no hope to raise this wall but for God. And they raise the wall. And they confess their sins. And they covenant together. And now they're just rejoicing here. Joy, joy, joy. All these redeemed people saved out of exile. Now worshiping God with great joy. A joy so loud. And Nehemiah says it's heard far away. This massive explosion of joy. And man, that, that worship. All these people gathered together. Praising, thanking, thanking God, glorifying God, adoring God, exalting God, just celebrating in God. Well, that is the pinnacle of this book. That is the climax, the high point of this entire book. Everything before this, just a plateau, building, 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 to that picture right there, worship. That that was God's goal from the get-go. When God initially brought these people out of exile, he wasn't bringing them out just to plant them in the land so they could be safe inside of a wall. No, he did all of that stuff in order that they might then be safe and worship him. The goal from the very beginning, it wasn't a wall, it was worship. The redeemed people gathered together in the city of Jerusalem worshiping the God who had delivered them. There it is. And God has done it. That's his ultimate goal. He didn't ultimately redeem these people just to be safe in the promised land. No, these people, they were redeemed to worship. God saved them, protected them, preserved them, planted them back in their land, built a wall of safety around them in order that they might then in safety worship the one true God with joy. (laughs) That's a fantastic picture. So he's a read right over that and you just miss it. You can miss just the flavor there in that. Please listen. That picture that we see there in Nehemiah 12, the pinnacle of this book, all these redeemed people worshiping God with great joy. Well, that's ultimately the pinnacle of all human history. There it is. You know, these, these historical events that we've been reading through here in the book of Nehemiah, these are the last historical events in the entire Old Testament. And Nehemiah is not the last book in the Old Testament, but the events in this book, these are the last historical events in the entire Old Testament. And what do we see there? Right at the end of Nehemiah, right at the end of the Old Testament. You see a redeemed people gathering together, worshiping God with great joy. And that's what you find at the end of the entire Bible in the book of Revelation. The redeemed people of God, worshiping God at the end of history as we know it, just on a much grander scale. 
That which we see there right at the end of Nehemiah, the pinnacle of Nehemiah, (laughs) that's just a small foretaste. That's just a small foreshadowing of what we will one day see at the end of human history. The pinnacle of human history. I don't know if you realize this or not. All of human history is ultimately about worship. All of human history is ultimately about worship. That's why God originally created the human race. (laughs) We were created by God to worship God. You were created to see and to celebrate God's glory. Did you realize you were created to see and celebrate something great? Do you know that's why you love to to sit and watch a great movie? Do you know that's why thousands of people today will sit in the stands at NFL football games and they'll look at something they think is great? They don't care that they're not on the field. No, they're happy to sit and see something they think is great because you were created to see and to celebrate something great. But the great thing you were created to celebrate is not ultimately a movie. It's not ultimately a football game. It's God. You were created to see and celebrate God. You weren't necessarily created to be great yourself. No, you were created to see and celebrate something great, God and his glory. That is why you were created The entire human race created to praise and adore and glorify God. The whole human race created to enjoy God. Man, just being gripped by the infinite beauties of God. The radiant splendor of God. Wow, look at our God. He's amazing. You were created to do that, to find your joy in God, to worship God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this. The chief end of man... Or the primary purpose of man is to glorify and enjoy God. That's your purpose, to glorify and enjoy God. Or as John Piper likes to say it, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying God. You were created for worship. You were created to glorify God. How do you best glorify or worship God? By enjoying God. As Piper likes to say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. How do you glorify God? How do you worship God? Well, you find your joy in Him. You find your satisfaction in Him, which is supremely glorifying to the God of this universe. And you were created to do that. You were created to worship God. That is your one purpose in this life. That is the goal for which God created you. That you might find your joy in Him The problem is, we didn't do the thing we were created to do. We didn't create, we didn't worship God. No, man, the second Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden, the human race stopped worshiping God. And we started worshiping God's things. Romans 1 says we began to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Man, our sinful hearts, our sinful hearts began to look for ultimate enjoyment, not in God, but in things God had created, in the things of this earth, things like money. We're looking for ultimate enjoyment there. Now, although human race, 
or looking for ultimate enjoyment in a relationship. If I just have a relationship, oh, I'll be happy. Or sex, if I can just have sexual intimacy, man, I'll really be happy then. Or, or power, if I just can get more powerful or just pleasure in this life or success in the, this life, then I'll be happy. But those are all inferior joys. We were never created to find our ultimate joy in those things. They will never, ever satisfy. We lost God. We lost the worship of God. The entire human race became a bunch of idolaters. You, me, all of us. And because of our sin against God, well, man, similar to these people here, we ended up in exile, banished from God's presence, enslaved, the Bible says, to the world, the flesh, and, and, and the devil. Our sin had now separated us from God, and in in our fallen state, we could no longer see God. We could no longer see His glory. We could no longer enjoy God. The Bible says in Exodus 33, 20, that sinful man cannot see God and live. We can no longer see Him. We can no longer enjoy God. We can no longer worship God. We were lost. Idolaters without our foundation anymore, without our anchor. Entire human race, man, the entire human race now had a worship problem. A major worship problem. Created to worship, but we couldn't do the thing we were created to do. And yet, even in our idolatry, God still loved us, still loved the world, sent his son, Jesus. You know what Jesus came to do? He came to fix the worship problem. He came to fix the worship problem. You know, if you ask a lot of people, why did Jesus come to this earth? Well, they might answer with, well, Jesus came to give us forgiveness. And that's true. Jesus loved us and he lived and, and he died to pay the penalty for our sin. And man, if you now simply turn to Christ in, in childlike repentance and faith, a sinner turning to him for mercy, well, he forgives you of your sin. Jesus did come to give us forgiveness, but here's the thing. Forgiveness is not the ultimate reason why Jesus came. It's not the ultimate reason why Jesus came. Forgiveness was just a means to an end. Why did Jesus ultimately come? Worship. Worship. Jesus came to give you forgiveness in order that you might then be able to worship the one true God once again. Amen. You see, in order for you to worship God once again, you need to be purified first. It's a biblical principle. Purification always precedes or goes before worship. And in order for you to worship God again, you had to be purified. And that happens through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. But that forgiveness was just a means to an end. Why does Jesus purify you? In order that you might then be brought into the presence of God again? In order that you might then see God again? Have the ability to begin to see God again? In order that you might have the ability to find your enjoyment in God again? 
Jesus forgives you in order that you might worship the one true God again. These people here in Nehemiah, they were redeemed to worship. Redeemed to worship. Man, and you are also redeemed to worship. Listen, you're not saved by God just so you can live a safe life. Have a nice life. No, you're redeemed to worship. You know, so many Christians today kind of have this, this, this man-centered idea of salvation. Well, well, salvation and, and Jesus, all of this thing, well, it's all about me. My forgiveness and my happiness and my prosperity and my wealth in, in, in this life. And yes, salvation does have something to do with you, but please hear me on this. Salvation is not ultimately about you. Salvation's ultimately about God. You're redeemed in order to worship. That's why Jesus came. And as a Christian, if you now trust in Christ as a simple childlike faith, man, you now begin to worship God in this lifetime. You, you begin to do it. it. It just happens by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. The second you truly turn to Christ in faith, now it's not just that you say you trust in Christ, but there's been something supernatural that's happened in your heart. You have turned to Christ in, in faith. Well, well, your spiritual eyes have now been opened. You can now see that Jesus is the all-surpassing treasure in this world. You don't know how it works out, but you know Jesus is pretty cool. You can taste it in, in your heart. And, and you now begin to experience some legitimate joy in Jesus and some joy in God. Matthew 13, you, you now know that you just found the infinitely valuable treasure. And in your heart, you joyfully now give up everything to have that supreme treasure. Worship now, man. It begins to stir in your heart as you begin to find joy in God. You begin to find joy in Jesus and you begin to sing in worship as, as a Christian. Listen, God's people, God's people are singing people. They just are. You see it right here in the book of Nehemiah. You see it all over the entire Bible. God's people, they, they just join together and sing. They sing worship to God, honoring God. Do you know Jesus himself even sang? The Last Supper, Jesus sang hymns to God the Father. Man, had Christians for 2,000 years now since the days of Jesus? Well, Christians have been singing together in worship to, to God. Can, can I encourage you then to do that on Sunday morning? Can I encourage you? Don't, don't just sit there and listen. And I know there are those of you who do. I see it. We see it. Can I encourage you? Open your mouth and sing. Open your mouth and sing. Open your mouth and sing with God's people. Do you know that God actually tells us to sing in, in worship to him? Look at Colossians 3.16. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And how are you going to do that? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is one way that you teach and admonish one another. Singing is one way we encourage one another. Singing is one way we encourage ourselves when we're depressed. Just, I'm just going to sing. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to sing. And somehow your heart begins to mount up again to God. 
But man, it's not just singing as a Christian now that we worship God. No, we can worship God in all of life. We worship God with our obedience. We can worship God in, in our prayers. We can worship God just by learning to enjoy God more and more in everything we do. That's worship of God. When you're practicing his presence as you go through the day and you're just learning to enjoy him more and more, you are worshiping God. Man, as a Christian, you begin to worship God in this life. Not perfectly. No way. Not always a perfect joy in God. Many days you don't feel the joy. But you begin in this life. The worship begins to stir in your heart. And here's the thing. The Bible says Jesus will return someday. He's coming again. And, and when Jesus returns and he renews this fallen creation and he creates a glorious new heaven and earth, do you know what we'll, we will then find there in that new heavens and new earth? A perfected worship. Here's a little picture of it, Revelation 7, 9, the end of all things. Here's the worship in heaven. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The pinnacle of human history. The end of all things, that's been God's ultimate goal from the get-go. To have a bunch of redeemed people gathered around His throne, finding their enjoyment in Him forever and ever and ever. God's glory and your joy go together. And that's the pinnacle of everything. You know what you'll find there in that final worship? Joy. Pure joy you know in this lifetime our joy in god it's always mixed with some sadness have you seen the movie inside out <laughs> it's not bad there a little picture in this life joy always goes with sadness but in the next life the sadness is gone and then there's nothing but joy <laughs> You know what will then be said about the people of God? Here it is, Nehemiah 12.43, And they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. If you're a Christian today, let yourself be gripped again by that final picture. That's your final home. Let your desire for that home be stirred up again today because your desire for that final joy is one thing that will sustain you in your present trial c.s lewis said this he said i must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which i shall not find till after death i must never let it get snowed under or turned aside i must make it the aim the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do 
the same. We have been redeemed to worship. May God help you to trust in Christ. May you begin to worship today. And man, may you look forward to that day when you will experience nothing but perfect worship, perfect joy in the presence of God forever. Well, Lord, we just bless your holy name. We thank you, Father. We thank you. We can just see it. See it there. Just a little picture, a little foretaste of of just something you have for us in the future. A redeemed people rescued out of exile, saved from sin, saved from slavery. Lord, we're all sinners, all of us. None of us perfect. None of us great. But Lord, you love us. And that final picture is just a bunch of redeemed sinners trusting only in the Lamb of God. Gathered around your throne in glory. (laughs) Feasting with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Just worshiping. A pure and unadulterated, unmitigated joy in your presence forever. God, will you give us faith to believe it? Lord, will you give us faith to believe it? And our desire for those superior joys, that is what will help us to walk away from inferior joys. Lord, help us to be gripped by the superior joys that are only found in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.